0: Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we discussed the consequences of the usurper Gundevald’s first appearance in Gaul, before he retreated out of the region, and we discussed the subsequent civil war between Chilperic, Childebert II, and King Guntram. Chilperic attempted to use Guntram's moment of weakness to remove his rival, but failed when Guntram defeated his army on the battlefield. Childebert's troops had revolted, preventing him from threatening either of his uncles. This week, we'll discuss the aftermath of this quick but brutal conflict in episode 39, A Quick Return to Peace. When we left off last week, all three of the Merovingian kings had managed to find themselves on the back foot. Quite an impressive achievement, really. Not often do you find a war that ends with three participants, but no winners. Let's take a look at each of the three kings, starting with Guntram, and examine what kind of a mess they were each in. Despite winning a stunning victory, Guntram was probably still in the weakest position. He had defeated Chilperic, but it was more of a last gasp of survival ...than a heroic turning of the tables. Plus, with Childebert II now in the field... ...Guntram's exhausted army was in no shape to press their advantage. He needed a truce more than anyone... ...not only to protect himself... ...but also to put an end to the army led by Chilperic's dukes... ...which were devastating Guntram's lands in central Gaul. On top of these issues... Guntram's political position was not greatly improved by his victory. He had seen off the short-term threat to his rule, but the medium and long terms were still looking bleak. The alliance between the powerful Chilperic and the newly coming-of-age Childebert II was still a massive concern. He had survived this time, but Chilperic had proved himself determined years ago in his wars with Sigebert. And his capacity for war would likely rebound from this defeat. Childebert's coming of age also meant that he'd be more effective on the battlefield and harder to manipulate diplomatically, especially with Brunhild having his ear and beginning to remove her rivals at his court. In addition to this, Gundevald was still a threat waiting for his moment to strike. As we discussed last week, he had proven capable at wooing important figures in Guntram's lands, and it was mostly Guntram's lands that he would inevitably try to peel away to form his own kingdom. The conflict with the great general Mummolus had also yet to be resolved. So, as I hope is clear, Guntram's problems were far from over. Chilperic faced probably the most obvious issues, if the least serious in the long term. He had bet hard on removing Guntram, and losing to the famously unwarriorlike like king in the field must have been a major blow to his prestige. His army had been more successful in the conflict around Bourges, but, as we'll soon see, he's going to have trouble controlling his men, something that will cost him in the peace negotiations. His lack of control over his men also probably reflects a general weakness in his authority at this point, something that will take work to overcome. He needed a truce to buy himself time to recover and consolidate his position domestically once again. Childebert II, despite being the only king not to actually take part in the battle, was in the most complicated position still young, he was beginning to take an active role in his kingdom, but still lacked control domestically. His court was still controlled by ambitious nobles, whose scheming had begun to backfire, but they still retained major power in the realm, and Childebert was far from being able to assert his personal control over his court. This would make his position in the peace negotiations even weaker especially considering the mutiny that had just occurred amongst his troops. Despite the mutineer's apparent pro-Childbert sentiment, it still demonstrated a stark lack of control. Childebert was still a junior player, and a lot of work would be needed to change that. Right now, a pause in hostilities would allow him to consolidate his position back home, something he needed desperately. So... All three kings needed a truce. How did the peace negotiations turn out? Well, let's examine them and see what they reveal about the positions of each king moving forward. The day after the battle Gregory recounts that messengers flowed back and forth between the camps of Chilperic and Guntram. Perhaps wary of Childebert's force, which still posed a threat as far as they knew, or perhaps simply aware of each other's difficult positions, the two older kings seem to have quickly come to an initial agreement. They exchanged promises to allow, quote, bishops and leading subjects, end quote, to determine how far the bounds of the law had been exceeded and how much compensation each side would need to pay for damages. This agreement is a sign of just how desperate Chilperic's situation was immediately after the battle. He must have known that he would end up paying far more than Guntram. The fighting had been entirely in Guntram's lands, Chilperic's armies had been the one to invade, and he had used two major forces. Even if he hadn't yet heard of his duke's plundering of Burush, he was already facing a massive bill for the damages he'd inflicted unprovoked. A second sign of Chilperic's difficult position is recorded by Gregory. Quote, with peace restored, they each went home. King Chilperic found it impossible to keep his troops from plundering, and he had to have the Count of Rouen executed on the spot. End quote. Remember, whatever his men took, Chilperic would likely have to pay back to Guntram in compensation. Now, armies of the time lived off plunder. Personal enrichment was the goal of basically all the men who joined these forces. So, knowing they were heading home unsuccessful, it is not a surprise that some indulged in some looting. But the execution of a noble, a fairly important one too as Rouen was a major city, is startling. It indicates that Chilperic had lost enough authority that at least one noble tried his hand at disobeying the king right under his nose. Of course, Chilperic clearly retained enough authority to decisively deal with the man, but the incident is still notable. Upon returning to Paris, Chilperic disbanded his army and was left to pick up the pieces. They'd been forced to abandon all the loot they'd taken, so he really had nothing to show for his efforts. But his discipline problems were still not over. Let's turn to Gregory again: quote, "When the troops who were besieging Bourges received the order to withdraw and return home, they stole so much booty that, as they evacuated it, the entire region seemed empty of inhabitants and cattle." End quote. Now this was obviously a problem for Chilperic. Not being there personally, he couldn't do anything to limit the devastation. But he would have had to foot the bill. He also couldn't punish the leaders, and I would be entirely unsurprised if a lot of that loot secretly found its way into the hands of the Dukes. Their king had failed, but they had not. Why not help themselves to some rewards for a job well done on the way home? But somehow, the problems for Chilperic in this short term just kept coming. As part of his army returned north, they passed through the area of Tur, an area controlled by Chilperic. There the men, led by Desiderius and Bladist, quote, stole everything that they could get their hands on and murdered the inhabitants out of hand, just as if they were in enemy country, end quote. Again, armies of this era were like locusts, and a wake of destruction followed them wherever they went. But to not temper yourself moving through friendly territory, well, that was another thing entirely. The dukes and their men were basically taking taxes right out of Chilperic's hands. A worrying sign of instability. To make matters worse, pestilence followed in their wake, as it so often does during war. Gregory records the animals that hadn't been taken by the soldiers mostly died in this plague, leaving his region around Tur impoverished. Chilperic's prestige had taken the biggest blow in this conflict, and that was probably his biggest concern. But the compensation he had to pay and the damages to his own lands would have been a harsh sting in the tail for the king. In fact, it is interesting to note that the only king who found any kind of concrete gains in the conflict was the one who hadn't actually fought after the conflict king guntram perhaps worried by his nephew's militaristic stance returned half of Marseille to the young king which if you remember had been the stated impetus for this whole conflict in the first place but the issues that had caused this conflict remained childebert's lands in the south still remained at the mercy of guntram who could take away that half of the great port city whenever his nephew got out of line. Guntram might have survived, but he did so barely, and the eventual return of Gundevald threatened another moment of weakness that his rivals would doubtless seek to exploit. Chilperic had lost face and authority and plenty of treasure, but his setbacks were all temporary. The boldness and disobedience of his troops, though, a much more worrying development now we have a lot to cover over the next few weeks including a mountain of important political developments so instead of diving in now and starting yet more threads for us to tie up later let's tie one old one up now and discuss the end of ludist former count of Tour, and rival to Gregory if you remember back to episodes 28 29 and 30 Ludist had clashed with our friend Gregory over who held ultimate authority in the city of Tours. This was part of a larger trend of bishops and nobles clashing across the kingdoms, but Gregory's personal involvement gave us a personal look into this trend. And as you may recall, while other bishops had suffered, and even Gregory had to navigate some turbulent waters, he had come out decisively on top, and Ludist had been declared an outlaw and fled. Well, if you enjoyed watching our narrator engage his prestigious wit in some politics, then you're gonna love this. One day, a few months before the civil war broke out fully, Ludus reappeared in Tours. He showed Gregory a written order from the king, saying he should be allowed to reunite with his wife and be allowed to take up residence in the city. He also had a letter signed by several bishops asking that he be allowed to take communion once again. Now, I don't know about you, dear listener, but if someone who had tried to frame me and destroy my life turned up on my doorstep saying that he had the right to come back into my home, well, I'd be a little miffed. And Gregory seems to have shared my feelings. The letter from Chilperic is particularly interesting, as the king had been the one to punish Ludist after the trial, but if you remember, this had largely been to make Ludist a scapegoat and avoid the rage of the collected bishops himself. Now that some time had passed, the king seemed to be trying to weasel his man back into the city, and it seems likely he had leaned on the bishops to support this effort as well. Gregory could not simply refuse the man. Contradicting the king and his fellow bishops was a surefire way to reignite this conflict. But Gregory wasn't just going to let this go. Ludus' back, even in a reduced capacity, was still a threat to his authority. No, no, Gregory was far too smart to be caught in such a weak bluff. He knew how the game worked. We already know what a capable politician he could be. I'll let Gregory explain his next move himself. Quote, it was largely because of Queen Fredegund that he had been excluded, and so, as I saw no note from her, I put off making a decision. When I receive an order from the Queen, I said, I will readmit him without more ado. End quote. Now this was genius, in fact this move of Gregory's basically doomed Ludist, though we'll get to exactly how later. For the moment, remember that while Gregory and Fredegund hated each other, Ludist had wronged them both. When Gregory had been cleared of slandering the Queen, the blame for the rumours had fallen on Ludist. Gregory knew what Fredegund would think. And by deferring to the queen, he both looked sensitive to a wronged woman's needs while undermining Chilperic's authority with the implication that the king's orders could not be followed without his wife's say-so. So Gregory wrote to Fredegund personally and received the reply he needed. She told him she had been forced into accepting the decision. And not to readmit Ludist until she had, quote, had time to see clearly what my future action should be, end quote. This is where Gregory's political brain kicked in again. He writes that upon receiving the letter, he was immediately worried that Fredegund would have Ludist killed. So worried, in fact, that he went to Ludist's family and begged them to let the man know that he should be on guard until Fredegund's anger could be assuaged. He then says, quote, This advice, which I had given, in all sincerity and for the love of God, was received by Ludist with deep distrust, for he was still hostile to me, and unwilling to accept any suggestion which came from me. End quote. So Ludist, distrusting Gregory's advice to lie low, promptly decided to do the opposite, and set off to see the king. Who could have seen that coming? Certainly not Gregory, right? There's no way the bishop could have foreseen Ludus' distrust of advice. Ludist was about to put his foot firmly in the proverbial. He approached Milun, where the king and his troops were stationed, possibly in preparation for the war with Gundrum. Seeing that he needed an edge, Ludus did the stupidest thing possible. He approached the army and asked the men there to intercede on his behalf and gain him an audience with Chilperic. Did you notice how Ludus's return to Tur was so low-key, so not public? He just came with some letters for Gregory, no fuss, no noise. Well, I'm glad you noticed, because Ludus does not appear to have given a second thought as to why this might have been arranged. Instead, he had made his situation public, meaning Chilperic now had much less leeway in how he could handle the situation. When Ludus approached Chilperic, the king tried to get him to just chill out and wait, saying that he had angered the queen too much, and he had to wait until Chilperic could find a way to talk her down. By approaching publicly, the dispute was now out in the open, and if the king had tried to send the former count back to Tours, he would humiliate Fredegund by siding with her slanderer. And if there's one person you don't want to humiliate, it's Fredegund. Now, the following passage is fascinating in part thanks to the power dynamic between Fredegund and Chilperic that is revealed. But we're going to talk more about the details of this in a future episode about Fredegund and Brunhild and gender. So, for the moment, let's focus on Ludist. Ludist, somehow, had gotten entirely the wrong message from his meeting with Chilperic. Instead of listening to what the king had said about patience and lying low, he'd been encouraged by his success in getting the meeting in the first place. And when Chilperic had mentioned Fredegund's anger, he hadn't heard a warning, he had seen a solution. If only he could convince Fredegund to forgive him, well, he'd be golden. Good thing she was known for her forgiveness and not, you know, all the murders she'd probably done. So when the royal couple returned to Paris and went to the cathedral on Sunday for mass, they were confronted by Ludist, who threw himself at the feet of Fredegund and begged for her forgiveness. Fredegund, now confronted in the most public place possible, had to react. Ludist had no doubt hoped that this public place and the fact it was a church on a Sunday would help his case with the Queen, who would like to be seen as merciful. Unfortunately for Ludist, this was a completely foolish misreading of Fredegund's character. Her response is fascinating. She first invokes her dead sons, asking the Lord Jesus to take up her cause in their absence. She then falls to her knees and tells Chilperic that it is awful that she must be forced to see her enemy and be so powerless to do anything about it. Boy, now that is some solid gold guilt-tripping. Now in public, with a tearful wife and an interloper interrupting mass, Chilperic had little choice. He waved to his men, who seized Ludist and threw him out of the church. A quick trigger warning for the next part, because the descriptions get a bit graphic. Ludist, somehow still not getting the message, decided that maybe the church hadn't been the best place to confront Fredegund. But would he give up? Of course not. Better to confront her on the street, of course, because, uh, some good reason I can't think of. Clearly getting a little desperate, Ludist began following the royals when they left the church and began walking down the street. He stopped at a few shops, buying jewellery, of all things. Whether this was for Fredegund, or someone else, we'll never know, because he was never able to finish his purchase. Looking up, he saw that he was being surrounded by some of Fredegund's men. In a panic, he drew his sword to defend himself, stabbing one of them. In a rage, the rest of them descended upon him, and one struck him in the head, cutting away most of his hair and scalp with their blade. Somehow, Ludist escaped, blood running down his face and body. He fled across the city bridge, but his foot got caught between two unfinished planks, and his leg, pushed on by the force of his flight, snapped in two. Now wounded and leg broken, he was bound and thrown in jail. Chilperic had now lost all hope of using Ludist and Tour. The former count could only have one last use to the king, sating Fredegund's lust for revenge. Chilperic ordered Ludist's wounds seen to so the man wouldn't die. But he also ordered him subjected to cruel and lingering torture. Not the type to get answers, just the type designed to hurt. Ludist was taken out of the city and to one of the royal estates, where he could be better controlled and isolated. There, he was tortured relentlessly until his wounds eventually began to fester. Then, at Fredegund's personal command, he was placed on the flat of his back, a block of wood was wedged behind his neck, and they beat him on the throat with another piece of wood until he died. Now, can we blame Gregory for what happened to the man? No. Even if you believe that it was Gregory's manipulation that sent the man to see the royals, the bishop can't be held responsible for Fredegund's cruelty, or Ludist's poor judgement. No. The one lesson we can learn from this is never, ever, slander Queen Fredegund. Not while you're in stabbing range, at least. on that gory note, let's end this episode. Next week, we're going to look at some political shenanigans before moving on to the big shifts in the realm that are on the horizon. See you then.